King Jesus, we worship you today. We honor you. We lift up high your name. You are the king who lowered yourself and dwelt among us and even blessed the children. Lord, we praise you, and it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. So, kids, special welcome to you today. Uh, Hopefully you got a bulletin on your way in, or maybe you have your worship journals with you. Uh, I would encourage you today to draw a picture of your perfect home. What would be the most exciting home for you to have, and what would that look like? So I would love to see a picture of that, and then after the service, uh, feel free to put it uh, along with the other drawings that we have back there at the children's uh, table back there. Um, But what would be your perfect home? So the psalmist that we read today says this. He says, we wait for the loving kindness of God in the midst of your temple. Well, ever since our ancestors, Adam and Eve, were cast out of the garden long, long time ago, all of humanity has been longing for home. Perhaps you've felt that longing even within your own hearts. Perhaps it came during a a treasured meal with people around you who know you and love you well, and you enjoyed fine food and fine drink with one another. I think of the men's retreat, or not retreat, the men's gathering that we had last night, and just how jovial that time was and how fun that time was. Or maybe it comes when you step foot out of your own front porch in the morning and you see the sunrise and you see the beautiful pinks and the blues and the oranges and you're just struck by the majestic beauty of God's creation. Or maybe it's when you're at home and it's cold outside and you've made a fire and you look into that fire and you remember past conversations that you've had with loved ones who are no longer with us. And you long for those conversations in your home with them again. I think that in those moments, there's something divine that's happening within us. There's a spark within us. There's a yearning within us that's pointing to not just those particular um, events in and of themselves, but pointing to something beyond them. It's, It's tuning our hearts to long for our home in heaven itself. We all long for home. Well, God willing... At the end of this month, I hope October 31st will be our first Sunday for restoration in our new home. I'm a little excited about that. I hope you all are too. And we're super grateful for the hospitality of the Parkway Theater and the community center and the really deep and real ways in which those have shaped our communities over the years. But I am really, really excited for a permanent home. Well, our Anglican prayer book uh, has a building consecration service in it, and we're going to be holding that building consecration service on Saturday, October 30th. It's going to be a beautiful, glorious service, and our prayer book has several scripture lessons that are assigned for for that consecration service. And I thought it would be really cool in the upcoming weeks leading up to that consecration service to take some of those scripture lessons and use them on our Sunday mornings and preach for them. So even today, as you heard the scripture lessons being read, you probably thought about uh, the, the imagery of home, the theme of home that was running through these passages. And so we're going to be talking about themes like a theology of a sacred space. We're going to look at Jesus Christ, who is our cornerstone. We're going to talk about what it is as our role as stewards of holy space, that is the priesthood of all believers. What does that mean? We're also going to be looking at the sanctuary as a house of prayer that the Lord Jesus says himself, a house of healing, a house for all nations. And then finally, we're going to look at how all of these things come together 
and prepare our hearts for that final day in which heaven and earth will be joined together and we will finally have our eternal home. Well, today we're going to be looking at the prophet Haggai. And this has been an exciting uh, passage to study throughout this week. And we're going to look about how even in the midst of a national crisis, God can prepare a home for his people. So let's look at the prophet Haggai. If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to find the prophet Haggai. (laughs) That can perhaps take a little bit of a while. It's only two chapters long. It's very short. Um, It comes at the end of the, towards the end of the Old Testament. Uh, It's there in your bulletins, obviously. So the prophet Haggai is writing to a people, to the Jewish people, who have been away from home for several hundred years. Uh, They have been away from home for generations. They have been away in exile But now they're returning back to the homeland of their ancestors. But unfortunately, there are some problems that are waiting for the people there. Now, upon their return, they had probably illusions from the prophet Isaiah, kind of, who who had prophesied several years or several hundred years earlier, saying that upon their return, that the desert would, would break out into lush vegetation and there'd be bursts of flowers everywhere. But instead, when the people came home, they saw the opposite. They saw the desert sort of encroaching in upon their own fields. It was near impossible to start reaping a harvest uh, from their own fields. And so one year of drought followed another. And then there became food shortages and then extreme poverty. And so the people didn't necessarily have all the riches that they had before when they had previously built the temple in that place. But then it gets worse. Speaking of the temple the crown jewel of Jewish culture and life together, that beautiful, bustling, holy temple, it now lay in complete and utter ruin. Old Testament scholar Joyce Baldwin puts it quite poetically. She says, the ruined skeleton of the temple was like a dead body laying decaying in Jerusalem, and it made everything around it completely contaminated. Ugh. Like, that's just gross, right? The temple as a decaying skeleton across the land. But thankfully, there's good news. There's plenty of signs that we have throughout this this book that the people of that day, of Haggai's day, they were actually aware of their own shortcomings. They recognized that they needed a divine intervention here and now. And so these are a humble people, and they're prepared to confess their past failures, to reorganize themselves, and to set themselves to work. So how about us? How about us here and now in Minneapolis in 2021? How do these ancient events from 2,500 years ago have any bearing onto our life now? Well, we we have experienced a bit of a drought, but I I think an even bigger comparison, an obvious comparison to a condition like that would be the pandemic that we've been suffering this last year and a half or so. The pandemic has caused poverty on material, emotional, and relational levels. We're all experienced that poverty in some sort of sense. And while we may not have a decaying temple in our contaminating our landscape, we have to be honest and look at the present situation of Christianity here in America these days. Like a ruined skeleton, the American church is decaying from layers of or scandals and abuse endless internal debates, and then also toxic leadership cultures. So sure, Haggai's words may have been written two and a half thousand years ago, 
But their situation, I think, is all the more relevant and familiar to us today. So we're going to walk through this passage relatively quickly in three separate movements. We're going to be looking for more ways in which the Lord is speaking to us and even preparing our own hearts for home. So in verse 1, Haggai says, in the seventh month of the 21st day of the month. Now, this is kind of a small detail, and, and usually I don't like making a big deal of this, but do you know what month? Uh, if, if we were to map the Jewish ancient culture or uh, calendar onto our modern calendars, do you know what month this would be written in? October. October. Isn't that cool? That's kind of cool, right? All right. Anyway, you can read into that as much or as little as you'd like. But the letter is addressed to Zerubbabel, the governor, who, Anne, you pronounced all those words flawlessly. Way to go. <laughs> Zerubbabel, the governor, he is the ruler of Jerusalem, and he represents that royal rule of King David himself. And then there's Joshua, the high priest, and he represents the restoration of worship longed for by all of the people. But then this letter is also addressed to another group of people. All the remnant is what the Lord's word says. All the remnant of the people. All of God's people of the land, from the youngest to the oldest, from the richest to the poorest. Everyone is invited to come and participate in this restoration project. So what does God say to all the people? Well, he says, do any of you remember what the old temple used to look like? Do you remember how glorious it was? And what about now? Isn't it terrible, the Lord says? Now, of course, no one saw Solomon's temple with their own eyes in its glory days, but surely they've told the stories, right? Surely they, they knew how beautiful and admired it was across the entire world. It was a glorious temple under King Solomon. King Solomon spared no expense. Marble and cedar was adorned with gold, silver, and jewels. From miles and miles away, you could see the temple glistening in the middle eastern sun, as if heaven itself had sort of dripped down upon the earth. And so the people now, they, they were disappointed. They were, they were struggling with their regret and despair, knowing the stories of how glorious Solomon's temple was. And their disappointment about losing the past was making them gloomy about the future. And so the first thing we can draw from this passage is that even though they are a depressed people, even though they're a gloomy people, the Lord speaks to them. He has not forgotten them. In the midst of their crisis, he has not forgotten them. And so what does the Lord say through the prophet Haggai? Three times he says, be strong. He says, be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the earth. And then like a hammer hitting an anvil, he says, work, for I am with you. All of you who are like achievers at heart, you know, who, who love getting stuff done, you hear that and you're like, yeah, let's work, let's get things done. And then all the contemplatives are like, no, maybe later, you know, we'll think about that. So he says, work, I am still with you. And this isn't some sort of like false, sort of like self-mustered kind of mustering up of your own self, this like false fitness. No, this is a, a God-ordained, Holy Spirit-infused source of strength that the Lord is giving to his people. And God reminds the people of his steadfast love. He says in verse 5, I am with you according to the covenant. That is, according to that long promise that I made to you long, long ago. He says, I am with you. And he says, my spirit has not gone anywhere. I have been with you during your exile. I've been with you upon your return. I've been with you as you've gazed upon this fallen temple. Don't be fooled by the ruins. I am with you, the Lord says. 
So my kids are really big into sports right now, which is a growing experience for me because I was never into the, the sports, the sports ball and things like this. Uh, so it's, it's a learning experience. My, my dad, who's here today, loves sports, and I guess it skips a generation. I don't know. But anyway, on Sunday evenings, usually as our family is looking into the week ahead and we're planning our schedules and stuff, my, my girls are always like, Dad, are you coming to my game? Are you coming to my meet? Are you coming to my competition? And I wish the answer was always yes. It doesn't always pan out that way. I'm, I'm finite, and it's, it can be a challenge sometimes. But as kids, we want to know that our parents are there watching us at the sidelines, that they're cheering us on. And mom and dad, I feel that way. This isn't a moment of guilt or anything like that. I feel very encouraged and affirmed by you. But as, as children, we want that affirmation from our parents, right? Well, this is God in this passage saying, you have work to do. It's gonna, you've got a challenge ahead of you, but I am with you. And instead of kick it into the goal, I'm reminded of that verse that says that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. It's like, it's like the Lord is saying, like, we're going to kick in the gates of hell together. Like, let's go. Like, you've got this. I'm on your team. I'm right there by your side. Let's go. Be strong, he says, over and over and over again. Like a father who's given his children something exciting to do. The Lord is thrilled to watch his people get to work. And so third and finally, we see in this passage a glimpse of future glory. God, or Haggai, or God says through the prophet Haggai on verse 7, he says that God says that he will shake the nations. That's pretty terrifying if you think about it. So that's obviously an allusion to earthquakes, and earthquakes, they come without warning. There's no sirens for earthquakes. There's no escaping them. I myself have never been in one. I'm sure some of you have. But I've heard that it's an emotionally unsettling, literally, but also an emotionally unraveling experience. Because not only is, is, are you yourself shaking, but the entire world around you is shaking. There's, what can you grab onto that has any stability if the ground itself is shaking underneath you? And you're reminded in those moments of your own mortality. You're reminded of the, the fragility of any sort of human innovation or whatever. And it causes you to sort of reassess your values. You know, where am I spending my time? How am I spending my money? What sort of allegiances do I have? Well, the Bible tells us that God will shake the entire universe. And this action will stir the nations to invest in the Lord's temple. Now, that is both a terrifying thing, but also an encouraging thing. And I think even as we look at the events, the modern events of our recent days, have we not been experiencing a shaking of sorts? And I think all of you have probably spent some sort of time in the last season or so thinking about your allegiances, your values, how you spend your time and your money. This, is, this has been a great time of assessment, I think, for all of us. Well, then in verse 9, Haggai says, the Lord says, the latter glory of this house, that is the temple, the latter glory will be greater than the former. Do you think the Jews actually believed that? Because they're looking at their resources, they're looking at their poverty, they're, they're basically a bunch of peasants who've just been released from exile. They're in no way, it's not even a close comparison to um, sort of look at the resources that Solomon had. So did they actually believe it? Because what the Lord is basically telling them here is, get ready, the best is yet to come. How in the world would God pull that off? Solomon's temple was spectacular. How in the world could a restoration project 
led by peasants be any better? Well, as history should actually have it, there, this actually did come true. The, the temple, that, uh, several hundred years later, under uh, the Herods and their rule, the, the rulers at the time of Jesus, they were able to build up the temple so that it was both uh, larger and more glorious and impressive and probably valuable than the one in Solomon's day. But I don't think that's actually what God has in mind here. I don't think it's the material impressiveness of… Is that a word? Impressiveness? No, it's not. Okay. You know what I mean. (laughs) Molly's great for correcting me about making up words. But I don't think that's what God meant. The most glorious moment for the temple came when God Himself came down. The heavens ripped apart, and God descended down. He clothed Himself in human flesh, and He walked in the temple. Jesus Christ, God incarnate, taught with pure wisdom that astounded everyone around Him. He rebuked the religious leaders. He confronted them. He got in their faces, and He miraculously healed the sick. And then just outside the temple upon the cross, at his enthronement, he atoned for the sins of the entire world, far exceeding the glory of Solomon or Herod or anything that they were ever able to accomplish. Jesus Christ was the supremely glorious one. So we see in this passage, a tired and gloomy, to a tired and gloomy people, the word of God comes and says, be strong. Work for I am with you. The best is yet to come. So I think there's a few things that we can learn from this. What does October of BC 520 have to do with October AD 2021? Well, three things, I think, and I'll say this relatively quickly. First, God speaks into our crisis as well. And I don't just mean the crisis that's facing our nation, the crisis that's facing the American church right now. I mean, our own crisis, the crisis in our neighborhoods, the crises of, of your all, uh, in, individual lives that might be happening right now. I heard someone say the other day, you know, we're, we're so afraid of being exposed to the virus, but in reality, the virus is exposing us. Now, of course, we should take appropriate measures to uh, protect ourselves and stay healthy, but this whole pandemic has been one, one subsequent crisis after crisis after crisis, and it has been like waves crashing against the hull of an already battered ship, just one blow right after another. And I know for a lot of us, this has been taking quite a toll on us, hasn't it? Well, the good news is that God is not shaken by our crisis. That is the first lesson that we can take from this. God is not shaken from our crisis. Secondly, just like the ancient Jews, God is calling us to a task. God is calling us to a task. And it's quite obvious here at Restoration to see what it is, to see what he's been calling our congregation to. Not only has he sustained us through the pandemic by his grace, but he has actually given us for a dollar a building for us to restore and to work on. How incredible is that? Now, that building's not in decay. Uh, Those who we are inheriting it from have taken immaculate care of it. But we do have some work to do in order to update it and modernize its children's spaces, its hospitality spaces, and to modernize and beautify the holy sanctuary. And right now we're raising money, and by your generosity, we have about 40% of our congregation who have already participated in our fundraising campaign. 
And that's amazing. So 40% of you have contributed to this, and we've already exceeded 50% of our fundraising goal. Now, so we still have about halfway to go, and my hope is that 100% of us can participate in this. I hope that everyone who calls restoration in their home can joyfully participate in this project and be blessed by that. And of course, I want us to hit our financial goals, but I believe that the work that God is calling us into today is an echo of what God has done in previous generations and what he will continue to do in future generations with a grand culmination of the combination of heaven and earth on that final day. And I'm grateful for the community center, I'm grateful for the parkway, but I think it's okay to say that for restoration, the best is yet to come. I am so excited for what the Lord has in store for us. So, thirdly, we may be in crisis, but even greater than that, we are in Christ. Friends, God has not forgotten you. God has not forgotten us. In the same way in which he spoke to those ancient Jews 200 or 2,500 years ago, he is speaking to us. And he says, I am with you. My spirit remains in your midst. And I don't know what your faith journey is like. I don't know everyone's story in the room right now. But we believe here that when you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, he picks you up out of the turbulent storm of this troublesome world. He forgives you and washes you. He cleanses you from your guilt, your shame, your sin. And then he places you within the household of his son, Jesus Christ. That is the church. When you become a Christian, it's not just about your individual relationship with Jesus, although that is very, very important. But you are welcomed into the household of God where you are surrounded by brothers and sisters, aunties and uncles, nieces and nephews, an entire household of God, people who are with you through the crisis, through this troublesome world. So I wish that I could say that the crisis goes away when you become a Christian. Sometimes, quite honestly, it gets worse. That's what the scriptures tell us. But the good news is that you have a home in Christ, and his spirit never departs from you. So I pray that uh, if, if that is you today, where you, you don't have a home, you feel like the crisis has just been throwing you to and fro in this world, please come and talk to us. Pray with us. In fact, after communion today, we're going to have prayer ministers available in the back, and they would love to pray with you and talk to you about what it would look like to surrender your life with Christ and to be joined into this household of faith. Because, friends, there is work for us to do today. There is a mission for us that the Lord is preparing for us. And you are all invited to participate in that. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, we are blown away by your grace. You, Lord, have plucked each of us from the crises of our world, and you've given us a home together. You've given us a family together. And not just the physical space, Lord, although that's awesome, but you have given us um, fellowship with one another brothers and sisters, aunties and uncles, nieces and nephews, and we thank you for that. Lord Jesus, I pray that as we go about our week, you would tune our hearts more and more into desiring your kingdom, desiring home with you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.